Shut up and sit down. everyone and um we're going to be talking about uh uh redeeming characters in fandom fan fiction tonight um i uh i'm on the wrong thing what i lost my chat window i lost all the windows give me a second okay 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 i am all situated sort of maybe Okay, so tonight we're going to talk about redemption arcs because I have a redemption arc for um, a character in my Quantum Bang project, and so I've been thinking about the mechanics of it, and it it isn't so much about the character, um, the character that I've chosen, but the actual mechanics of redemption that I'm interested in, and we're having um, there's a chat going on um, in the writers' table about um redemption arcs but the thing is is that the chat basically devolved de-evolved or whatever into a conversation about the characters themselves and their motivations in canon and how to fix them versus the actual mechanics of um redemption and that's fine um because I want there to be an organic conversation happening, you know, in, in the writer's table. Pretty much every day would be my ideal if if we could have a topic, you know, that would kind of get people interested in talking about the process and about writing every day would be really cool. I would I would super appreciate that. Um, so I'm not unhappy with the direction of the conversation, but it's not really what I intended to talk about. <laughs> but you can't control other human beings that way and how their minds go. Um, but anyway, tonight on the podcast um, – I'm going to try <laughs> to talk about the mechanics of redemption um, uh, as it pertains to your story arc and your plot and um, characterization and um, GMC um, goals, motivations, and conflicts. Uh, I got a little uh, note in my email, um, not chastising me, but reminding me that I do have newbie writers in my audience and Sometimes we talk about things that just go completely over their head. Um, so if we could be a little bit, so if I could be a little bit more um, uh, conscientious about that fact, she would appreciate it. And I'm not mad because she's right. There are new, new newbie writers in um, who, who listen to the podcast, and I don't want to go over your head. I, I want to bring you along for the conversation. Um, so don't be afraid to ask questions in the chat room or um, ping me on Facebook or whatever if I've talked about something that you don't quite understand. Um, just just ask me. Just you know, ask me. Um, ask Jilly. We're we're more than happy to discuss um, topics that we talk about on the podcast. I'm gonna get Jilly on the air, and she's been active in the conversation on um, uh, in Facebook about the. Uh, the topic, so I'm sure she has a lot to say. <laughs> and um, my board went from empty, there are no calls, to like a whole bunch of calls. I don't know where they were hidden, but these guys have been 
I don't know. It was weird. I, I had nothing, and, and, and now I have um, a whole collection of callers. It, it was really weird. Are you there? I'm here. Okay. Um, I'm actually, there are two threads, and one thread is kind of character-focused because, you know, there's the question about which characters do you like to redeem. And the other one was more about the, and I'm catching up on the comments on the mechanics of redemption thread. Um, yeah, I launched the poll because I wasn't getting a lot of traction on, on my original topic, but that's okay, though. Yeah. Um, yeah, redemption. Um I don't know. I think one of the things, at least for me, one of the things that is, um, if somebody's not, okay, if somebody's not that bad, kind of like they really haven't done anything. The redemption arc, you know, I, I wouldn't even call them a redemption arc, right? I wouldn't really have a reason to even identify it as that. Although I've heard people call stuff like that, like a redemption arc. It's like redemption from what? Um, so <laughs> Being an idiot to me. If, <laughs> Right. So to me, like if a character needs a redemption arc, it's because they've done some fucked up shit. Um, and if they've done enough fucked up shit to be, you know, called out about it, um, say like in the, in the, in the, um, poll, I think the more popular people were like Peter Hale and Loki and Snape. But, I mean, mm-hmm. these are people who've all done some fucked up stuff. So for me, when somebody does stuff that's that fucked up, you could just write them having a moment, an epiphany, and deciding to get their shit together. But I need some mitigating circumstances. I need some kind of mitigating factor to make them a little, not completely not culpable for their actions, but less culpable. Um, some kind of diminished capacity. I mean, whatever term you want to throw at it, just something that gives you a little bit to work with. Um, because in that case, their own guilt is going to be their biggest issue. Now, like in the case of Peter Hale, I do think he was batshit crazy. I think that's baked into canon. Um, they tried to call it something else at one point, but that was just pretty much what was going on. Uh, whereas, like, Snape, and, and especially Snape, um, he um, was just just bad. So that's where I need to kind of work in some for redemption arc. I need to work in some kind of mechanics to kind of mitigate some of that badness. Uh, And I don't consider writing a story where you are backing things up to before their bad acts and doing a canon interrupt and taking them on a new path. I don't consider that a redemption arc. That's just writing a new. I would say that's more of a canon divergence AU than anything else. Right, so um, Senna wrote one of those, which she wrote um, uh, Pendragon Rising. Uh, was it Pendragon? Was it? I know it was Pendragon something. Was it? Yeah, because mine's the Legacy, hers is the Rising. That's how I keep it in my head. <laughs> yeah, so she um, um, she just changed. She did a canon divergence from when the Snape was a teenager, I think, before he took the Dark Mark. So that that to me is not. I mean, it's a beautiful story, but it's not a redemption arc because he hasn't done anything that needs redeeming. Uh, if the character's right. not aware of their own faults, it's not redemption. So um, I just want to throw that out there as a 
Because I've seen people tell me, oh, this is a great state, you know, like Snape Redemption story. I'm like, but it's a complete AU. He doesn't even know. He never did those things. What is, maybe it's being, so, and there's a difference between the character being redeemed and being redeemed in the eyes of the audience. Yeah, that, that's what I would say, that a lot of times I see in fandom, it's more about changing the reader's perception of the character than changing the character's perception of their own acts. Right. Right. Because you're always the hero of your own story. We talked before, like a long time ago in a different podcast, and I'm sure Rogue might have listened to it recently, <laughs> depending on where <laughs> she is in the in um, in her tour. Um but we talked about how um, the perspective is everything, and it really is everything. If you take the Wizard of Oz from the Wicked Witch's point of view, Dorothy murdered her sister and stole her inheritance. That evil little girl. Dorothy, Dorothy's an asshole to the Wicked Witch. She's flying a house without a license. <laughs> and Glinda facilitated um, the theft of her inheritance and uh, threatened her with the method that had just murdered her sister, um, which could be considered an act of terrorism. I mean, you know, so it just really, it really depends on the perspective. So you look at, um, say, the Avengers, the ending like a victory. And it was a victory for Tony and Steve and humanity, but it was a failure for Loki and Thanos. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't get what they wanted. <laughs> Not that I'm saying I wanted them to succeed. That isn't the point. We're talking about perspective. Um, well, somebody, can, what um, I meant, I, I mentioned on that thread about the mechanics that about the two different, to me, redemption arcs that I'd written, which is Slytherin Black, um, very different in scale because one is actual redemption needed and the other is um, perception of redemption needed, uh, which is Slytherin Black and Elio Moto. And somebody asked me if I wouldn't count uh, the other Harry Potter story I wrote, um, Restoration, in, in amongst the redemption arcs. And I said no because neither character perceived that they needed redemption really. Or if Lucius needed any redemption, he only needed it in Severus's eyes. So, and he did redeem himself from that. And but it was a completely. That's the case of where point of view really matters, like you said, because they didn't really change, really. No. If at the point, okay, Robina asked in the chat room, um, "What if you made Snape change after Lily died? Would that be a redemption fix or a canon divergence?" It would be both. If he didn't take the terrible path he took in canon after her murder of, you know, abusing genera- you know, an entire generation of children um, because of petty bullshit, if, if he had um, truly repented, and I, I have it, I have it in the thing, um, you know, that, re- that, Redemption is more than just saying, I'm sorry I did this. It's, I'm sorry I did this. I won't do this again. I'm going to work on myself. And I do believe that 
you, you have to repent and and you have to pay a debt whether it be an emotional debt or a, you know, you, know, you just actions speak louder than words snake said he loved lily but he didn't cuz how could he have loved her and then abused continuously her only child verbally it so his actions didn't didn't speak to his his words didn't speak to his actions so that's not redemption but if he had taken a different path strive to be a good person strive to be a positive force in the lives of the children that he taught at Hogwarts if he had treated Harry with kindness and respect then I would consider that redemption what do you think? Yeah, I, I agree. Because he had already, um, he had already, there had already been bad acts at that point that he needed to be redeemed from. So he, there just wasn't the, sh, you know, the shit pile of them that we had by the last book. Because um, you could even implicate Snape in the death of Sirius Black. Yeah. One of the most horrifying things I've seen in fandom is someone who hates Lily Potter and blames Lily Potter for Snape's downfall. And I was like, how the how the fuck does that work? Sorry, that was a sneeze. Sorry. Oh, sorry. Okay. Um. Um. Uh, well, I think I think there are some people who have. Um, I had I had a little bit of a conversation, not quite directly on this subject, but we talked more about the Marauders. Um, but she's got like a hair trigger about bullying, and so I think that I think there's some selective processing of information in canon when uh Snape is, when, when Snape is perceived strictly as a victim of the Marauders rather than participatory in that feud. Um but assuming when you, look you at view Snape it that and way. Dennis, I mean when you when you look at him, do you I, I don't believe for a moment that he took bullying without responding. I agree. That's my interpretation. But um so she has a a particularly hair trigger around bullying, and so it was easy for Snape to become um, a, a a figure a, a, a figure of sympathy. So, if you're of that mindset of kind of hating the Marauders, and then you see Lily choosing to be with James. Um, regardless of the fact that Snape had said something ugly to her, choosing to be with a bully. I mean, you can kind of see how somebody who's kind of, I, I find it to be a little bit of an illogical path all around, but I can, I can kind of see how someone who's like in, of that mindset to begin with could get there. Um, I don't know. It's just, it, it's not, I just don't think that if you really are taking a, an objective look at canon, really bears out Snape being a victim. 
Well, so, also, I'm not, you I'm have not to thinking. form this opinion having only read book five. Because by the time you get to book five, Snape has established himself as a vicious bully of children. Bully. Right. But that doesn't seem to matter. It seems to be justified in their mind. I guess, I mean, I don't know. I asked her about, you know, the way Snape acts towards kids, and she seems to think that adults bullying children is somehow not in the same scale as children bullying children. I don't it's know. Worse. It's just an odd thing that schoolyard bullies is just her particular hot button. And so th- there wasn't a lot of, and I think sometimes when you hit into people's hot buttons, there's not a lot of rational conversation to be had. Uh, For me, it's worse because an adult is supposed to be safe. You're supposed to be safe with an adult. And when you, and when they prove that they're not safe to be around, um, it's, it's so much worse. It's such a, because, you know, Adults are supposed to be safe. You're supposed to be able to run to them when you're hurt. Especially a teacher is supposed to be safe. There's supposed to be somebody that you can you you can go to if you're hurt or upset, or if you need help with your homework or what, just whatever. You should be able to go to your teacher and say, "This is happening, and I need your help." I agree. Um, I was bullied when I was young because I developed early. I was a smart ass, and I was smart, so teachers liked me, but a lot of kids didn't. I was very outspoken, and um, just... So there were people who did not like me all the way through junior high. By the time I got to high school, I was cute enough not to get picked on. But I had an attitude problem, so I was a bitch. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> there was that middle ground. I was still develop- I was still developing my resting bitch face. Um, but, uh, yeah, so... Um, but the thing is, is that a lot of people that I know that were bullied as children, the last thing they do is grow up to be a bully. Right. They end up having a great deal of empathy for other people. But you know what Snape is a product of? An abusive home. Because bullies come from... Terrible home environments, for the most part. You see a bully at school? That kid has no power at home. Or there's something going on at home. Um, yeah, something. The worst, the worst, the worst bully in our school was from. I mean, there wasn't any evidence that he was an abused kid in any fashion, but his dad was like the wealthiest guy in our town. So. You know, I mean, he, I can't say he had any particular power at home, but he wasn't entitled to snot. No, and Daddy yeah. got him out of everything. He probably wasn't um, parented, and neglect yeah, I'm sure can be just as damaging yeah. as anything else. I think Draco falls into that category. I think um, he is um, powerless at home.
Yeah, probably. And he probably wants to desperately earn his father's approval. Right. So he acts the way he thinks his father wants him to act. But, you know, the mechanics of redemption can be I think it's I think it's a tricky thing to do because it can if it falls flat with the reader, you that's your if you're writing a redemption arc, that's your foundational premise. That's your point. So if it yeah, that, that if it's is actually one con- of my bigger concerns. That I'll fall flat in your in what? Yeah. Oh, with the in redemption arc. Bank. No. Um. Yeah, I don't think it falls flat. Whatever. I'm sure you so would tell. Me. <laughs> I would. I would tell you. I'd be like, you'd be like, bitch, no, you need to work on this a little bit. <laughs> you missed the boat. <laughs> but it is a concern when you, um, and I have actually, you know, I've honestly, I've, I've never really delved too deeply into um, the redemption arc for any character. Um, there have been stories where I have explained away Snape's bad parts just to, you know, just to move him out of the way. Um, a lot of times I consider him more of a plot obstacle than an actual, you know, character that I want to work with. Uh, so, um, which is often why I kill him because it's just, he, he's in the way. <laughs> he need to go. <laughs> but, um, so, so writing a, a redemption arc for a character that I honestly think his canon actions are unforgivable. <laughs> a little yeah yeah it's a a challenge and that's why you have to for me if I'm going to take somebody who's really done something that is deserving of redemption not deserving or or needs not deserve but they need redemption nobody necessarily deserves redemption that's something you got to work for but um, if I want to write them I have to give some level of mitigation without it being so mitigating that it completely absolves them. So it's sort of like um, somebody had mentioned um, Bucky Barnes. I don't think he needs any redemption for his actions as the Winter Soldier. I don't think he was even present. So no. his, the mitigation the mitigation is in canon, um, but it is so extreme. You know, 70 years of brainwashing and torture uh, is – I, I don't, there's no redemption arc to write, you know? Um, so, but when you take a character who's done bad things, um, then you, you kind of got to build in enough um, mitigating, you know, kind of give something to kind of soften that blow a little bit. So like with, with Snape, I usually do some kind of, in stories, some kind of, compulsion potions, obedience potions, something to kind of make him a little bit less culpable for some of his decisions. Um, if I were writing, like, Loki, Thanos is a popular way of dealing with why Loki invaded Earth, um, which I like better. I have read stories where uh, it's kind of, like, written away as it being due to his birth, you know, that Odin kidnapped him or whatever. It doesn't work real well for me because maybe in Thor, in Thor, I could deal with that being 
um, he kind of had a snap when he found out that he was Yoten. I mean, he is the monster that, that Asgardians talk about, right? So uh, what he did in Thor, you might be able to work with Lord Loki's origins as the mitigating factor, but by the time he invades Earth and goes on a killing spree, you need something more than he was adopted. Um, that's where Thanos is a really, I mean, he's, he's an evil fucker. Look what he did to, look what he did to Nebula. So, um, you can really do a lot, I think with Thanos in terms of brainwashing, torture, whatever you give some mitigating factors. And then I think most people, like, even if there are mitigating factors is if they remember what they did, they feel some culpability for it. If they're a good person at all, even if they wouldn't meet any kind of legal criteria for being responsible. I think you know Thor loves Loki. Um, um, he loves his brother, and but by by Ragnarok, he's learned he can't trust him, and and that yeah. in itself is is a kind of heartbreak. So in the end, when when Loki chose to stay with him, and and he realizes that Loki's actually on the ship, and 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 he's with him, um, Thor has has finally got Loki back. Uh. In a way, maybe he never thought he would, you know, because um, in a moment when 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 Thor needed him, Loki was ride or die. <laughs> he was in. He was on it. And then and then Thanos does what he does, and I think it it broke Thor's heart. Yeah, I agree. I just I think Loki's a character where it would be fairly. Because of, of things we don't know, it's pretty easy to craft a redemption narrative for him. Mm-hmm. Writing it is not necessarily the easy part, but the coming up with a redemption narrative for him um, is pretty easy because there's so much we don't know about what happened with Thanos. But what we we do know how Thanos behaves with people he cares about, much less somebody he doesn't give a shit about. And we saw what he did to Loki in the end. So that gives a lot of credibility to... Thanos had a lot more to do with what Loki did on Earth than Loki did. Um, so I think that's an easy kind of not. You said know, sometimes the coming up with the 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 reason is a lot easier than the execution of it. I always because it can fall flat anyway. Um, the whole Thanos Loki thing. It, it depends upon I think um, what the writer what the writer does with it, where they go with it. Um, Because also, I think that there, I don't think I mentioned on the Facebook focus, for me, there has to be something to go with the, um, some, something that helps them earn it in their own mind. Because, you know, you're not just trying to sell the reader, you sell the character on their, their redemption, right? So mm-hmm. there's going to be a task or something, but just, I doesn't like Loki just turns up and he tells everybody what happened to him. And everybody feels sorry for him. And now he's part of the Avengers. That doesn't really gel in my head as a redemption arc. I think there has it's to more be of a, um, a moment of temptation. And, um, you know, um, that, that, that his actions, that a character's actions need to speak for them. At some point, mm-hmm. you you can talk. Your character can talk about their 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 guilt and um, 
you know, asking for forgiveness for what they've done wrong and for, you know, and explaining how they got to that point. But there has to be a moment in your narrative where your, where your character is, is faced um, with a with a decision that will prove to themselves and others that they really are on a new path. Yeah, I agree. I think that that moment, that that test, has to happen. It's not just it's not just, but it's even not just talking about. It. I usually give them give characters I'm trying to redeem something to do. They got to save the world or something. Um, and maybe not to that scale, but there's something. And then so there there is going to be that moment when they're tested. Is can you do this? Can you let it go? And um, so, like in um, the, the, the some of the stuff I mentioned is exactly what I did with Elio um, Moto. Is there's I built a lot of mitigations because when when, he, when when Snape's alive, he's not he doesn't perceive. I think this is the disconnect he has about his actions and why he feels so much shame for them is because when he's in his right mind, he doesn't understand why he did what he did. Um, He understands that he, his will wasn't his own, but when he lived it, it felt like it was his own. So he has memories of doing things because he believed he wanted to, but then when he doesn't have that influence, he doesn't know why he wanted to do that. So there's kind of a, it's like a, disconnect in his own mind about I wouldn't have chosen to act that way but when I was acting that way I chose it uh, so I had that moment for Harry in Unspeakable Plot when he talks about his sexual relationship with Jenny which was not consensual because he was being potioned but at the time it was utterly condition, you know, consensual in his mind and often at his his doing right. so he had a you know, he had a difficult time adjusting to the idea um, and even declaring himself a, a victim of rape and could not do it because in his mind it didn't make sense to him. And I think for your character, even if their conclusion is not rational, it can still be perfectly reasonable. And I let Harry yeah. have that. In unspeakable plot, where he, you know, he said, "You look, I, I recognize that this happened and it was bad and it was wrong, but I don't, I can't view those that as what you want me to do with it, and so I need to figure out how to look at this from my own perspective and process it and deal with it." Exactly. I that's a great parallel. And with 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 Snape and Leo Moto, he he doesn't he feels that's why he won't interact with anybody in the afterlife is because he feels so much shame for what he did in life that even though it, weirdly no one else really blames him for any of it once they all get there, um, and they want his help trying to figure things out, he just can't do it because he can't get past feeling like he made those choices. Um, right, and that he did it. His memory is, I did it because I wanted to. But now that I'm not influenced, I don't want to. I didn't. I wouldn't have done that. So that whole mitigation was almost more for the audience than it even was for him. Uh, but it, that whole thing fuels, and so his grand, his Herculean task 
that he has to undertake um, and what he's willing to do to and in his own mind he's not even thinking of it as redemption it's just he's desperate but what he's willing to take on and willing to throw himself in the path of is raising in a good home and supposedly trying to love the man who's murdered him over and over and over again and who had enslaved his magic in every lifetime and I would call that a nearly, and he's going to, you know, in the, post, and in the process, he's going to enable his son to save the world kind of thing. But I would think that that would be a, a kind of a, an almost an impossible task to, to take on. But in a way, and I don't delve into his mindset too much about this because it's a little bit more awareness of his own um, state than he would have. Uh, he, he feels he deserves it. He feels he deserves whatever it is that he has to do, no matter how hard it is. Um, and if there's a chance he can do it, he will. So, but I would he 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 has to, he dreads it what he's doing because he thinks that he's supposed to have to try to find a way to love this kid, um, and he's not sure he's even capable of that. So it's the task I put him put him on. Um, was I think a very difficult one. And then I would say I would say it might look like his moment is when he um, realized that he loved he actually loved his son. But I actually think the moment was for him, his moment where he really showed that he's all in was was when the ritual he crafted. Because without the best of intentions and without the work he had done to lay that down, the ritual he chosen would not have been as effective as it was. Um, so I thought the ritual that he created, because he could have used other rituals that wouldn't have been so subject to the failing if they weren't constructed correctly or if the people's intention was not correct. But because of everything he had done to build to that point and his belief in what he was doing, he was able to heal his son. And yeah, I think it was the actual, that leap of the, the once Thomas was better and easier to love, I didn't feel like that was as big a leap as the ritual, the crafting of the ritual to enable Thomas to heal. So the ritual was his, him crafting that ritual was sort of him, you know, crossing his Rubicon in that regard about, getting to hit towards the end of his redemption. So the ritual was the big deal for him personally, um, because once, once Thomas wasn't damaged magically and they could connect, it was easier to love him. So anyway, so that was, um, that, but those kind of, those kind of elements I are the things I put into like, in some fashion, I would put in, I think, almost anything with a redemption arc, which which is some sort of mitigation um, and then some sort of task and then some sort of moment where it's clear that they have re- been redeemed, whether it's a test or – I guess it's a test, not necessarily directly, but in some fashion it's a test – I would also say that it, you know, um, 
<laughs> redemption is not required. <laughs> if well, you, that's true. If you, if you, if you want to write your character doing terrible, horrible things, you go right ahead and do that. <laughs> but I, in, in exploring the redemption arc, the, the way I am, um, and, you know, you look at a canon example of a redemption arc, you can look at Tony Stark. How he went from um, a war profiteer to to Iron Man. Um, uh, and his experience, uh, you know, coming into his own. Um, and, you know, he stops being a womanizer. He stops getting stupidly drunk all the time. He lets himself commit. You know, so there's a personal redemption arc for Tony Stark in the MCU. Granted, you can't compare, you know, his womanizing and his war profiteering to, you know, uh, mass murder, but there there is a redemption arc for Tony that is that takes place in the MCU canon. Um, in some ways, even the first Thor movie is a redemption arc because you see Thor... Um, arrogantly, basically trying to start a war um, against his father's wishes. You know, he 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 disobeyed his king, um, and then um, him regaining his um, he, he earned his um, his powers back by being willing to sacrifice himself to protect the people in that town. So the MCU is full of redemption arcs. Gamora goes from assassin to guardian of the galaxy. (laughs) Yondu goes from regularly offering Peter up as a meal to his crew and then taking it back to sacrificing his life for Peter. (laughs) Now, as redemption arcs go, I have to say, just being, to me, being objective, as redemption arcs go, Yondu's is better than Gamora's. Gamora's acts kind of get they get hand waved away. It's like, well, now she's a guardian and she's protecting people. Well, and yeah, she, you know, bad things were done to her. Um, but you're excusing a lot with, um, she's clearly not a sociopath. Otherwise she wouldn't be a guardian. Right. So, um, yeah, her, her redemption arc was a little bit thin, but I agree with you. There are, it actually is the redemption arc. Um, a small when you have a character who's fundamentally not not really a bad person, the redem- I think the redemption arc is smaller and easier to craft. It's when you're writing a redemption arc for um, somebody who's a big bad, so you know, really like like Loki, Peter Hale, um, Severus, uh, Voldemort for that matter. <laughs> yeah, that'd be a challenge. Um, those are. Um, those are those require, I think, a lot more because you have to make the audience believe it. It can't just be, "I want to do better now." Well, why? You have to walk the walk. But yeah, those the 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 elements that I mentioned about you know the mitigating circumstances that doesn't apply really to um, a smaller arc. That's more, not a smaller, less bad acts, I'll say. So people who are basically fundamentally good people who screwed up. Um, 
I actually. But is it possible? Of, you think if there are no mitigating factors, um, with someone like. Someone who, and then has a moment when they realize that they're not the person that Mr. Rogers wanted them to be. <laughs> I think I think it depends. I think it depends on like how to do that. Like, um, I read one story that was, it wasn't really framed as a redemption arc for Snape, but I kind of I kind of interpreted it that way. But he really doesn't. I mean, it's not really clear what his epiphany is. He just. He finds out he has a son, not Harry, because no. Um, but he's already done bad things. But the story picks up basically when he finds out he's got a son. And he's basically living under some incredible manipulation from Dumbledore, which is a minor mitigation, but because he's able to get away from it. Um, and he goes off and takes his son and goes and lives elsewhere and tries to be a good person. So I think... I think that one of the reasons that probably worked was that we don't see him in that story doing bad things on screen. And also he's not re-victimizing the people he's hurt in the past. I think that's one of the things that for, for me it's important about a redemption thing is that if you're, there's a difference between making amends and sometimes, and, Redeemed, getting being redeemed, and they they aren't the same thing. And right, you could write a character redemption arc where they they are redeemed in terms of becoming a good person. But to me, that means they can't be re-victimizing the people they've hurt. Um, and sometimes making amends to people you've hurt means they don't want to see you ever again. You know, there was a. One of my favorite TV shows, which was canceled, was Code Black, and um, one of the main characters, her 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 story arc is that um, her I think two children, young children, and her husband. Uh, she was in a car accident with all of them, and with a drunk driver, and she was the only survivor. And um, when she eventually, I don't remember what season it is. I think season two, when she goes to the prison and meets with uh, the guy who's the drunk driver who's now serving time for all that vehicular manslaughter, um, and she she mentions that she had the other. I guess he's been writing her letters, and um, she had never responded or read them. And so it had taken years for her to finally go and meet with him. And he sits down and talks to her and says that, you know, those letters are part of my recovery. And she said that they weren't part of mine. And I think that that it was really shown a real bright spotlight on one of the things that I struggle with sometimes with redemption or men's stories is sometimes the character who needs to be redeemed shouldn't be doing it at the expense of the people they've hurt. Agreed. Um, and so sometimes the redemption is that, yeah, okay, they recognize they've done a bad thing. They do, do the best they can to set the things, the people up there leaving. Um, and, the, you know, do, do their best for the people they're leaving behind and then go and just, Maybe the kind thing sometimes for the people you've hurt is to just not be in their face, 
not re-traumatizing them all the time. Let's say Snape had lived. Would Harry's life have been happier never having to see Snape again? Probably. Hell yes. (laughs) So... I think if the person you hurt, you know, deserves an apology, uh, it, you know, maybe you apologize because you mean it sincerely or whatever, and whether they accept it or not or whether it means anything to them or not is not your lookout. It's there, there for them if they want it, and maybe you do that, and then you go away. So, um yeah, but again, like the mechanics are very different when you talk about. Because usually, if I'm going to write a redemption arc, I'm going to go like full hog, and I'm going to go with somebody who's done something really awful. <laughs> but well, I had considered because, like, I yeah. Well, I guess I wrote a minor. I hadn't thought of it this way, but I guess I wrote a minor redemption arc in um um memories. It's not that's the Gibbs character study story. Um, Gibbs did do some shit that he needed to make up for, and eventually he had to, you know, his act was eventually admitting his act, the act that proved, you know, his. Um, it was that he eventually had to apologize. He had to break his own rules, and not because anybody told him he needed to apologize. It always irritates me when Gibbs finally breaks his own rules about apologizing after someone's pointed out that he needs to apologize. He needs to come to that on his own. <laughs> so, um, I think one of the most, and I can't remember the title of the story, and I'm so sorry in advance for doing this to you guys. One of the most powerful ones I ever read in NCIS is that um, Tony sees the apology coming and he begs Gibbs not to do it. He's like, please don't. And Gibbs does it anyway. <laughs> and it's like, it's like getting punched in the face. It, it, it was it was really powerfully done, and I wish I could remember the fic, but I can't. Um, I believe it was a dead air fic, uh, and um, he was apologizing for how toxic the team environment was because it almost got Tony killed, and he was ignoring it, and and he took all the blame for what had happened, um, and he apologized to Tony, and Tony was like practically in tears, begging him not to apologize. <laughs> It was just really good. It was really good because Tony saw it coming and he did, he didn't think he could handle it and he couldn't. <laughs> so it was really good though. I feel like I've read that, but I am just completely blank. Um, right? I, I can't think of it either, someone... but I really I, I really liked it because Gibbs owned Gibbs owned his bad behavior and it was really powerful. Now, I mentioned in the chat that I redeemed Jenny Shepard in a story, because um, I do think she needs redemption. Um, her mitigating factor, yeah, her mitigating factor for her bad acts didn't come to me. And I don't, I honestly don't know how long she was sick, but most people who, considering how quickly her illness progressed towards up to leading up to her death, I have to think it wasn't 24 months. So. I, it doesn't really resonate with me that she was sick for a protracted period of time, like years. I think she found out about that later. Um, but anyway, um, but her 
her egregious bad acts really negatively affected it, it really in terms of scale. I, I'm sure it impacted the entire agency to a degree because she was a negligent director. Um, but she really put Tony in the line of fire for her vendetta. Um, so the scale isn't as big as someone like Loki. So I didn't give her mitigating circumstances for her bad acts. I just gave her a wake-up call where someone got in her face after she realized that she, she felt unfocused and grounded after she found out that her, that her father's killer, her perception of her father's killer was already dead. And she, you know, talked to somebody who told her, you got to fix what you broke. And so her redemption is about her just taking it on the chin every time something comes up that shows what shitty what a shitty leader she was. And if she had lost her job, she was she wasn't even prepared to fight for her position when everything came up about about Ziva because um, if she had lost her job, she felt like she would have deserved it. But since she was able to hold on to her job, she just like she had to do it to the best of her ability. And so when somebody told her, you know, you screwed up, she was just accepted it. So there were a lot, there were some little things that happened, like um, Zekna is usurping her authority in a couple of places, that she just didn't even fight it. She just accepted that it was sort of like, in a way, kind of like punishment for the fact that she had failed in the year, and she, and she just dealt with it. Pennant. I think it's important for your character to demonstrate um, their um, acceptance of the fact that they don't deserve to go unpunished for what they've done. That whatever they got coming their way, they they earned it. Yeah, and accept whatever happens. Well, maybe not whatever. I mean, sometimes punishment is disproportional to the crime. So you don't want to, you don't want to, that actually can be the, to me, a wrong way to approach the redemption arc is to turn your, the person that you're redeeming into a victim. I think that's really easy to do with characters like Loki. Um, so it's a fine walk. It's a fine line that you're walking. Um, I think Peter Pettigrew is easy, it's also easy to to move into um a role of of victim cuz cuz he's so pathetic. Yeah. And if there's any character in Harry Potter that is genuinely pathetic, it's Peter Pettigrew. He is pathetic. And there's that moment in the Shrieking Shrack when he's shack, shack, when he says he would have killed me talking about Voldemort and that's why he betrayed them and Sirius Black screams at him that then you should have died. Cowardness, his cowardice is is ultimately just deeply pathetic. It is very pathetic. 
I think I think if you're going to kill Pettigrew in a story, you got to, like, just kill him quick. You know, don't give him time to talk and be pathetic and be a victim. Just, just, just do it. That's why in um, – I have him put on trial in a story, and I believe it's uh, – I, I want to say it's unspeakable plot. And um, he gets sentenced to the veil, and instead of struggling the way Umbridge did – and screaming and having a big fit, he just turned and looked at Harry, and then he walked into the veil because he knew that was what he deserved. For what he had done. And... Really, that is the um, the most noble death that Pettigrew could have had. Um, and I don't think he actually deserved it. But um, that's what I wrote for Harry's sake. There's a Harry Potter fic where um, Umbridge and a whole bunch of other women from the, uh, from the ministry figure out that... Uh, Dumbledore is trying to rob Harry Potter blind and they form a coalition basically and uh, spend um, they they get Harry um, into an education program where Petunia thinks he's in a special school when he's actually you know being taught in the magical world you know his responsibilities and he's being taught what what he needs to be taught as well you know his his, his subjects English and all that stuff but he's being trained um, basically to be a peer um, at Longbottom Manor, and Dumbledore has no clue, and Umbridge is part of that. Huh. Part of a witch's witch's cabal. It's her and Minerva and Augusta Longbottom, and a couple other witches. Um, uh, that that really old one that does the owls um, at, at Hogwarts. Um, the lady that sends, the, that sends out the note saying he's going to be suspended for using his wand. Griselda? Oh, uh, Griselda Marks-Banks. Yes, she's involved too. And um, they're all pulling a fast one on um, Dumbledore. And they have Harry claim his vault when he's like five or six years old to prevent um, Dumbledore from taking um, Harry's inheritance. And Umbridge is the one that figured out what he was going to do. And um, they they make sure that Harry gets enough to eat and that he's dressed well and that Petunia treats him properly and that he has his own bedroom. And um, they just, they, they own it like a boss. And so when Harry comes to Hogwarts, Dumbledore is in no way prepared for what he gets. <laughs> but don't, I don't remember the name of it. I, 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 I binged when I broke my foot last. I binged. And I also wrote, you know, Obviously, I, I wrote that um, Draco Harry tra- time travel one where Neville time travels them against their will. Um, and, um, yeah, that's definitely a canon divergence, canon rewrite. It's it's not a redemption. Um, she's just an entirely different character. Uh, but uh, and so I binge read a whole bunch of Harry Potter on the, on the pit. And that story was one of them. Yeah, I um, I do that too. Sometimes I do big binge readings of a certain fandom, 
sometimes when I'm sick, when I had my back problem recently, I was binge reading MCU. Um, hundreds of thousands of words a day. Uh, I, I barely, sometimes I barely move to go to the bathroom. <laughs> I could feel like, I might as well go to the bathroom. It's rather desperate now. Um, and then you ever things so long just start to run together. You have to go at all? Because yeah. <laughs> I've done that. I'm like, Do I even have to go now? <laughs> it's been so long. The only way I minute. wouldn't have to go is if there had been an accident that I was unaware of. <laughs> <laughs> That's what happens when you get old, ladies. When you get old, um, you know how when you're young, you got about thirty minutes when you know you got to pee, and, you, and you're okay. You got you, you can pee; it, it'll, it'll be fine, and you can hold it. But when you, I think after forty ish, um, you don't know you have to pee until you have to pee immediately. <laughs> there, there's no yeah. um, stopgap. <laughs> there's no head. Yeah, up. it's terrible. <laughs> It's terrible. I mean, those days when I was re- binge reading, and I was like, "Okay, I better, I better go to the bathroom." I mean, it, it has been too long. Well, the thing is, a lot of times when I binge read, I'm binge reading lying down. So the minute you sit up, it's like, "Oh dear." <laughs> but not I need that. It's really like quick and really carefully. <laughs> it was really fortunate for my bed on those days, probably that it wasn't hay fever season for me. Because all you need, oh. you, to, you really need to pee is a good sneeze to completely mess you up. That's another thing that comes with age, ladies. So do your exercises. Do your Kegels. They're important. <clears throat> Super important. And not for the reason you think. Or your husband thinks. Or your man thinks. Whatever. They're good for all. Yeah, go ahead. They're good for all of you down there. <laughs> oh yeah, I didn't have kids, so I didn't. Yeah, apparently having a having an infant fetus uh, dance on your bladder makes it ha- makes that um, situation all the much worse. Mm-hmm. My aunt had to have her bladder packed. Yeah. Also, um, and now she can pee standing up your, like a dude. Yeah. If they remove your. Your, your all of your plumbing down there, you know, um, the bladder your falls bladder will fall. space. Yeah, yeah, and they have they use that they use a net to kind of secure it. They can, they can they don't ha- they they've developed it. But they can go in and kind of put that you know put things back in their right position. Which seems kind of but I think. <laughs> but yeah, it's a whole big surgery, right? It's like, okay, well, all right. So that has a hysterectomy. For now, these days, I I hope that when they do hysterectomies now, they just take care of that. You know, then you, think, you would go think. back in there. You would think. So my mom had. Oh yeah. So, my mom had a so while you're in there, could you tack my bladder and uh, <laughs> in position? Because I, my mom had her her complete. She had you know complete hysterectomy when she was um, twenty six, um, and um, so she's been doing the the antsy dance. I got to go to the bathroom right now since she was twenty six. <laughs> so you know, I was like, I I never understood her tap dance to get to the bathroom right this second until I hit my forties, and then I was like, oh okay, I get it. Now you know. 
I'm there. That commercial okay, is no longer the- funny, is it, ladies? <laughs> I gotta go, gotta go, gotta go. It used to be cute. Now it's like my life. And I'm cautionary. like, that's not cute. Yeah, it's a cautionary tale. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's me in five years. Well, nope, that's me today. There I am. Um, okay, so redemption. I... When it, I think, I think re, little redemption arcs showing little redemption. They're very satisfying when they're kind of written in well, you know. Um, and they're pretty easy to do with um, characters who haven't done really truly egregiously bad things. Um, the Argents came up in the the chat about redemption. I would have a difficult time that didn't involve time travel or complete personality transplant redeeming the Argents, except for Allison. Um, because that's just a whole buttload of ugly in there, you know? Yeah, um, it is. They saw people who get bitten by werewolves as so much less than them that they should be hunted and exterminated like rabid like rabid dogs. Um, they they basically and it wasn't it, aside from the idea the idea like Chris had the whole idealism thing going on right that he's supposed to be policing the werewolf community and I mean so maybe for him it's a little bit easier but he still did some stuff that's really fucked up um, and shady he did some shady shit yeah very he did very did some very shady shit but I mean Gerard just liked killing people it wasn't even an ideology he just liked killing and because he found a way to look down and find werewolves of lesser species, he was able to justify um, murdering probably thousands of people. Including children. Yeah, including children. Um, And even human children, you know, because their ideology said that it was werewolves, right? But they also kill humans, including human children, if if it helped them kill a werewolf or somebody connected to a werewolf. They didn't really care about collateral damage. So they weren't even following their own ideology. Um, so I agree. Gerard and Kate Argent are serial killers. Um, it, it's just, it's so, it's so, it's so bone deep, ugly that if I really struggled with it, I could probably, I mean, I figure for most cases, if somebody presents a problem to me, I could come up with a story to solve the problem, but I wouldn't want to. I think I would just right. feel icky. There's some characters I just don't want to approach redeeming. And Gerard and Kate Argent are characters that I have no interest in writing redemption arcs for. I, I just, No. Mm-mm. You know, a couple of years ago, I was had the same thing about Loki. But the thing is, is the MCU is so fucked up. I'm like, okay, fine, fuck, what? Whatever. <laughs> Everybody's an asshole at some point in this thing. <laughs> so, uh, granted, Loki's is probably not the worst, but pretty bad. Um, yeah. Well, honestly, I I was not down with Loki being redeemed, really. I didn't really read Loki redemption stories. Until Ragnarok. Um, Ragnarok gave me a different perspective on it for several reasons. Um, 
One, I think the biggest reason, I think it was a weird thing. It's almost like, I don't even know how to articulate it. It was like, it created some like kind of cognitive dissonance in my head, is that um, what Loki was in trouble for, from a human perspective, Loki did very bad things. He killed people. But from an Asgardian perspective, that wasn't why he was in trouble. I don't believe he was in trouble for killing humans. He may have been in trouble. He was in trouble for disobeying Odin. Because yeah. Odin clearly didn't have a problem with killing humans. No. Otherwise, he wouldn't have done all the shit he did with Hela. So I think, for starters, Hela gave me a little bit of a different perspective about... I do think there's... I do think there's... Loki's reaction to Thanos, which actually you don't see until Infinity Wars, they kind of got me thinking that there was some... Some something really credible going on there with what happened. That Loki didn't just meet Thanos and go, "Oh, hey, can I help you take over the universe?" I don't. It doesn't feel like that's how that went down. He was terrified of Thanos. So yes. if you just look at the can, if you just look at the canon element, there's clearly something that happened when Loki fell from um, the Rainbow Bridge, and um, And that that's a factor, but also just Loki's perspective is different. Uh, and this is where we talk about POV is everything, right? Um, if Loki was raised as a god, an, an Asgardian god at that, killing, random killing clearly isn't an issue. That wasn't why it was ever an issue. He disobeyed Odin and, you know, attacked, and attacked um, a, a protected realm. So... But- you know what? Even Thor demonstrated this in the Avengers. When they're talking about Loki and um, they're being kind of an asshole about it. And he's like, hey, he's my brother. And they said, well, yeah, but he killed 70 people. And you go like, almost see Thor going, oh, that's probably a bad thing, right? Well, he's adopted. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, because Thor... Thor clearly doesn't mind going to other realms and killing people. That's how he got in trouble in the first place. Right? So he'd be a bit of a hypocrite to be upset with Loki for going warmongering on another world. Since it's practically Thor's favorite thing to do. (laughs) Right. And in pursuit of solving it, and he still continued to do that. How many battles and people were harmed while he went, you know, going around the galaxy trying to understand the dreams about Ragnarok that he was having? He disappeared from um, from Asgard for quite a while between um, uh, Age of Ultron and Thor Ragnarok because he, yeah, that's why yeah. Loki was able to impersonate Odin was because Thor was so trying to find right. So it's just. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Loki's worst acts were definitely in the Avengers. In every other Thor movie, Loki comes through in the in, in in the clutch. Loki comes through. Um, yeah, because it's like um, I can try to kill Thor, but nobody else can try to kill Thor. <laughs> but you know what? Though? Right. At the end of that movie, I'm thinking to myself, Are we really sure that that Loki is the adopted one? <laughs> yeah, because no kidding. Um, I think it might actually be Golden Boy Thor <laughs> who's adopted. Thor's like a big golden retriever in the middle of really snotty cats. 
Yeah, yeah. So it's it's. I think I had had a no. I had a hard no Loki line. I think you know for me until I saw Ragnarok, and that was cemented by Infinity Wars. So uh, and then I went well. Okay, there's some wiggle room here. But for me, um, I think a lot of people, even coming out of the Avengers, were re- were willing to redeem Loki because Tom Hiddleston is hot. Well, there's that too, but that's the same. That's he's the hot same, on fire. Um, I mean, he is. Woo-ha-ha. <laughs> I mean, it's not exactly the same thing, but it's a similar motivation to redeem, the whole redeeming Snape thing. It's because people love Alan Rickman. So, yeah, this is a you're not them, a them, fan. I, you're an Alan Rickman fan, and I've said it before, and I will right. say it again. I would ask, I would task anybody with finding me a snary fic that was written and published before Alan Rickman was as Severus Snape. Because there is nothing Good sexually luck, attractive about the Snape in the um, in the in the books. He's actually as about as physically attractive as Filch. Could actually be more attractive. I don't know. <laughs> Jinx. Yeah, we're just we're just I was I had somebody responded to something at the same time I did in the chat. Um I don't. I don't necessarily think that the people want to redeem Draco because of Tom Felton. I think that the Harry Draco stories were going on before um, the movies came around. Um, I think. I also don't think Draco, for the most, for the most of the part in the books um, and in the movies, he was just a spoiled, snotty little kid. He wasn't somebody who needed redemption. He wasn't. I mean, Snape was awful. People overlooked his awfulness because of Alan Rickman. People weren't overlooking Draco's awfulness because of Tom Felton. Is that canon? I never watched those scenes closely enough to know if Loki's eyes were blue. Goes to Google. Uh-huh. <laughs> Well, I need to rewatch the first Avengers movie anyway, so um, I'll just pay more attention. I mean, I see that in stories a lot. I just assumed it was Fanon that people were talking about, that people were using it as the mitigation for his actions, showing he was under the influence of the scepter. Okay, so apparently his eyes were blue, although... He's actually got green eyes. Um, But based on these images, it seems like they're blue through most of the movie, except for that, except for a moment when he's Thor and him are kind of locked in a physical tussle and he's trying to reason with him and Loki's eyes are green briefly and then they go back blue. Interesting. I'll have to watch that and pay more attention to that. Um, Well, that certainly does indicate mind control to some degree. 
I'd be interested to know what color they were after Hulk did his thing. Because what's really interesting is that Nat shook Clint loose with a you know a, a blow to a head, and I have to think that if that kick in the head shook him loose, that what Thor did to Loki certainly would have done the same. <laughs> I would think. <laughs> Which is honestly the best part of Thor Ragnarok when um, Hulk does that to Thor, and Loki goes yes <laughs> with his arms up in the air. Best moment ever. <laughs> I laughed right in the theater, and I don't often do that. I I busted out laughing. But I am curious. I want to have to go watch the Avengers and see <laughs> see if his eyes are green or blue when they um when he asked for the drink. I, I they gotta be they gotta be green. It makes sense that they would be. It seems very deliberate if they are. Yeah, if they're changing eye colors like that, it does seem like they're trying to tell us something. That's not a glitch in the um that's not bad special effects. That's on purpose. That's an Easter egg we probably should have picked up eight years ago <laughs> or whenever that movie but came out. But it seems no. like some people did, yeah. but I, I wasn't one of them. I'm, but I just, I mean, the eye color thing was a big part of that movie, but I just never occurred to me that Loki was. What's really interesting then is if Thanos did that with the scepter, then turned around and handed the scepter to Loki so he could conduct the invasion that even Loki possessing the scepter didn't end Thanos' control. Well, it seemed like they were they were controlling him through the scepter. Thanos, it makes, it makes you wonder if Thanos crafted the scepter. Perhaps. Because how how the Infinity Stones got weaponized was wasn't I mean, they kind of maybe explained it a little bit with the Aether, but I don't know it wasn't really the Aether explained. was created by that head Dark Elf, um, so he could bring darkness to the nine realms. Right, so that one was explained, but how um, how the Tesseract became encased in the how how the I mean the Space Stone became encased in the Tesseract. I mean, basically, they were all weaponized in some fashion, except for the Soul Stone, which they put a trap on, which I guess is a weapon of its own. Um, and it's just not clear how that happened. It could have been Thanos' design. But what that really means watched- is that even when the scepter was on Earth, Ultimately, Thanos was um, in control of it. Yeah. yeah. Which also is I an interesting wa- thing to think about when you think about the fact that Wanda got her powers from the scepter, right? Yes, she did. Wanda and Pet- Petro, Pe- Peter, whatever. 
it, it's not clear. Her I brother. watched the scene. They have they have just that scene on YouTube. I watched it. Um, it's not clear what color his eyes are, but they're not a una- they're not that unnatural blue that we see in in Hawkeye's eyes. Because you know sometimes green, blue, gray they can everything looks sometimes they all look gray. Some people's eyes are very changeable color. And in that, they actually look kind of gray to me in that scene, at least on YouTube. Um, I, so I don't know. I don't know. But they're not that, that they're not that eerie blue that we see. They're just like eyes. They might be green. I can't really tell. I'll have to watch it on a bigger TV. Ellie, that's fucking funny. (laughs) So someone says that they wanted to hint at Thanos as he's the ultimate bad guy. And Ellie responds, Thanos has to one ring. (laughs) Apparently he did. (laughs) Our, our, Our world is a little bit lame, though, and we had to have five Infinity Gems and a gauntlet. Are you there? I'm here. I'm I'm looking like, at my- Tom Hilson. I got I I I got distracted. Um You can watch Loki fall from the bridge um on YouTube. Do I need to watch Loki <laughs> fall from the bridge? No. He's so pretty. I have to try to I have to cut that off because I got distracted and was just looking at pictures of him. It's it's really difficult. My mom was um she said that my dad was watching um Kong and uh he got ready for bed and turned it off and she was like she turned to me and she said he just turned it off and walked away like that man wasn't wearing a perfect T shirt. I said, Isn't it terrible? <laughs> I said, not everybody appreciates his perfect T-shirt like we do. <laughs> no, they don't. And how dare they? <laughs> that shirt was its own character in that movie. <laughs> it it it's like it did. It was magic. It was magic fabric. It never stretched. <laughs> never I mean, I, I I wear a T-shirt. It is a. It doesn't matter how tight it is at the start of the day. It is a baggy mess by the end. It's just the nature of a T-shirt. <laughs> Not that shirt. No, no, no. That shirt. That shirt had special powers. It's magic. Well, it had to look perfect. Otherwise, you know, it would have been failing him. And that shirt obviously did not want to fail Tom. <laughs> it had a job. No, that 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 shirt didn't want to fail us. Let's let's be real. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that shirt had a fourth with. wall break. It knew we were there. <laughs> He's like, I got you, ladies. I got you. And he did. It goes, this movie will make more money if I succeed in my mission and stay tight. <laughs> I wonder how many copies of that shirt they had during the movie. There must have been a hundred of them. But <laughs> yeah, probably. Well, some, especially key wardrobe, they often have lots and lots and lots. It's phasing it, but they probably had lots at each phase of like dirtiness or whatever, so that they could make sure it stayed nice and tight. Either that or they were shoving him into a T-shirt that was many times too small. <laughs> Repeatedly. But speaking of my mother, we, we went to see The Meg um, 
on Wednesday. My mama loves some shark movies. Okay, it's her favorite thing, and I'm like, okay, well, we can go watch it because it's got Jason Statham in it, and I ain't mad. Um, and there's a part, there's a part where he's taking a shower, and somebody knocks on his door. He's he's in this um, um, underwater lab, and so he wraps a towel around his waist and goes to the door to get it. And of course, it's his um, soon-to-be love interest, and she's like, "Oh, you're naked." <laughs> she's looking, she's trying to look everywhere but him. I'm like, "Girl, look." He put that towel on just for you. <laughs> and it was nice. It was very nice. And so she leaves, but there's a little window in his door. And she keeps, and his friend catches her checking him out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying it's a great movie, but it was really fun. And the dog lives. So you should watch it if you get a chance. <laughs> Yeah, I'll probably. And Jason Stratham is Stratham is naked in it uh, with a t-shirt, and so that's just it's it's really difficult to um, be um, be mad at a movie where Jason Statham walks around half naked or in a wetsuit most of the movie. <laughs> just saying, yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> nothing wrong with that at all. Oh, look, tight black wetsuit. Yep, that works. Oh, look a towel. That really works. <laughs> But when when he goes, I, well, I meant to tell you is my mom's reaction to this towel. Okay, the, so there's a knock and he had wraps his towel around and he walks out and we both went mm. <laughs> at the same time. <laughs> so yeah. It was, it was nice. I'm not mad. I think a lot of times movies are set up to be, um, a, you see, um, the redemption arc as the main premise of the movie. Um, Even if it's a personal redemption versus like a societal redemption where the society views this person as bad versus this person views themselves as bad. Um, I think Pacific Rim would be a good example of a personal redemption um, when he comes back to, um, and to fight after losing his brother and he accepts her as his partner and you know they they you know they finally get it right and they get in there and do the job. I think that's a personal redemption story, a hero's journey mm-hmm. in some ways. Yeah. But what's really interesting is to have a redemption character and then a character who not only isn't redeemed but has no interest in being redeemed. Someone who is perfectly yeah. content with who they are. Um, so it's a there's a there's a balance in my story where I have this one person who's like, Nope, I'm good. <laughs> but you did, yeah, I know, I don't care. <laughs> Move on, I did. 
And then I have the other character who's kind of like, you know, dealing with some shit. And uh, it, but yeah, so it's really interesting to have that. It's like a dichotomy that that balance in my story of these characters, some of whom want to do really good, and some and some who are only doing good because of their circumstance and because they want to keep what they have. Um, it's very mercenary, um, but it's just part of the character. And so, and I don't want to give too much away. I'm going to end up telling you guys my story if I, if I don't stop. But um, it's really interesting to have characters who, um, some who were seeking redemption actively and others who were just completely uninterested in it. <laughs> no, I'm good. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, because I, mean, I, mean, I think that there's, there's a, um, you could have a character who, not talking about your story, but that um, you could have a character in a story who maybe the perception is that they've done some bad things or whatever, but maybe they did it because it was necessary. Um, and they're sort of like, you know, I do it was necessary. And they don't have any problem with what they've done, but maybe they accept that they're not the one who gets to settle down and live. I can't remember what movie or show or book, but there was something about that in – it was like somebody who had helped ensure that the world kept spinning. They did a lot of bad things to ensure that it kept spinning. And when, you know, they said, well, now you can, like, retire and have a family. Where they're like, you don't get it. People like me don't get that kind of ending. We get to protect the world. We get to save the world or whatever. We don't necessarily get to live in it. Um, uh, that's the Batman thing, isn't it? it um, um, isn't that in the Dark Knight trilogy where Batman takes on the um, crimes that Two-Face committed? There's that may be... That may be what that may be an example of it, but that's not what I was specifically thinking of. It was okay. something more contemporary, okay. some more contemporary, less less fan, less uh, less um, superhero than that. Um, I want to say it was more like some sort of like um, it feels like it was a spy of some sort or some sort of um, wet works operative or something like that. Um, so you know, speaking so like, of, yeah, I'm like, really like, looking forward to Amazon Prime's. Um, Jack Ryan. It looks really yeah. good. Yeah. And you got to figure sometimes when you're writing characters like that, if you're even writing a James Bond kind of character, um, they the characters, those characters sometimes do some really questionable things. And they may not perceive that they need redemption, but they may accept that it's one thing to not think that they, for them to be okay with what they've done, but they may also accept that it means that they don't just get the normal. Um, they they don't get the normal you know life afterwards. That it's just they've done things that make it fitting into a you know sort of normal box really difficult. Um, John Wick was an interesting story. Um, it wasn't really. It wasn't even like he had ever even tried to find redemption. That wasn't even ever his jam. It's like he had found this one thing. It was worth stopping what he was doing. And it was like all of his morality, all of his everything was tied up in that one person. She was his, his touchstone, his North Star or whatever. And then when um, when she was killed, he had no reason, none, not to let there be as much collateral damage as possible.
the fact is, is when you have someone like John Wick as a character, and they have that one person that that keeps them, um, keeps the animal in them at bay, and then that person is taking away, take, taken away from them. Um, and the thing is, is if he hadn't been provoked, he might have lived the rest of his life in that house with that dog. Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe he would have got another dog when that one passed. He would have, you know, taken up some hobbies. But someone poked a bear or a wolf or whatever you want to call him. And that animal that had been kind of hibernating in him broke loose because at that point he had literally nothing left to lose. And the most dangerous man or woman on earth is someone who has nothing left to lose. When you can take nothing else from them, not even their life, they have no fear. And you can't rationalize with that kind of person. You can't bargain with that kind of person. Um, And they found that out in John Wick. There was no bargaining with him. He told that guy, I'm going to kill your son. There is no bargaining. And they all knew it. They all knew it when John Wick, that the only way they were getting out of it alive is if they managed to kill John Wick. It was fantastic storytelling. Yeah. I love the first movie. I, it's so violent, but I love the first movie. I usually don't watch movies that violent, but, you know, there you go. I heard there is going to be a three. Um, I could, yes. I would, when I saw two, I advise people don't see two unless three is out. Because you will not want to see two with the way it ends without knowing that three is at least coming. Three is coming. I've seen some stills, um, and somebody quite uh, famous was cast. Uh, a woman. Um, I was not expecting to see in John Wick movie. <laughs> Hold on. There's even a trailer it's coming out in 2019. Trailer debuted on YouTube on July 24th. Um, Haley Berry is going to be in it. Um, Angelica Houston, that's the, who I was thinking of. I was like, uh, it's called John Wick, John Wick Parabellum. Legendary John Wick, jo- legendary hitman John Wick must fight his way out of New York when a $14 million contract on his life makes him the target of the world's top assassins. But Angela Houston is the director? Angelica Houston is the director. Well, that's awesome. Ruby Rose is in it. Haley Berry. The usual suspects, Lawrence Fishburne. Anyways, coming next year. If you've not watched the first one and you can handle the violence, I highly recommend it. It's uh, the, the, the violence in the second and, one. The violence in the second one is way worse. So, really, um, if you're <laughs> yeah, if you're if you're struggling, <laughs> oh. Um, if you're struggling, if you're struggling with the violence in the first one, like you're kind of like, is that your edge? You really might need to be very careful. Like with two, like plan to watch it maybe in segments when it gets to be a bit much kind of go, okay, then 
Well, no, it wasn't my limit, but it, but it was very violent. I mean, I think my limit is probably more of a disgust limit than a people dying limit because the first five minutes of Saving Private Ryan made me throw up. I don't care how many people die on screen, but I don't want to see their guts out on the floor. Yeah, I, 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 I'm with you there. <laughs> I just, I have my limits, and that would be it. Um, I had to leave the theater. I threw up in a trash can, um, you know, where you're supposed to put your stuff at the end of the movie. Yeah, I barely made it to that trash can. Uh, I wasn't the only like one. I didn't, <laughs> yeah, it's like I didn't I ended that. up sharing that trash can with somebody else. Uh, seeing it on a small screen is nothing compared to seeing it in the big screen. And the manager came running with water. He was like, hello, ladies, how are you doing? And I was like, oh, my God, and I threw up again. <laughs> but he got us some water, and um, he sent an usher to the to the aisle to watch the movie so that we, we, we would know when we could go back in to, to, to finish the movie because of how gross it was. In oh, God, it was terrible. Oh, I, some movies, I, I know that there are movies that they feel like they need to show you the horror that war was, but I feel like, you know, I feel like I, I got it now. I got it. <laughs> I don't need you to show me again. I mean, I think the only other time I've actually been actively nauseous in a movie, and I can't even talk about it, but it happened in Blade 2. I can't even... I can't. There were brains involved. Okay, let's just... <laughs> She's, okay, I sent for the gag, so don't do it. Don't, don't do it. <laughs> it was bad. It was really bad. I was like... Man, I barely maintained. No, I had not that issue. Part. Yeah, go ahead. I had that issue with... Um, I had to finally stop watching Spartacus because some of... I mean, they were just... they were. They were going for the shock factor with some of those deaths. And there was something with a brain in one that I just went, oh, no, that's not right. I'm 100% done. I can't. I can't, I can't deal. Um, actually, the last time I got nauseated in the theater was actually something very – it was just, it was actually not related to content at all, although the content was terrible. Um, but the cinematography was so – like moving around, it was it was a choice of this kind of wild moving camera work, uh, and I got so basically seasick. Uh, I had such bad motion sickness sitting here in the theater that I had I, I wanted to leave anyway because I hated the movie, um, but it made me it almost made me throw up from from motion sickness in the theater. Sitting I still. had to leave the Blair Witch Project because I couldn't watch it. I um I barely made it out of that theater. I was so nauseous and um. The manager um, ended up giving me a refund. I just could not watch it. It was just, I, I, I couldn't do it. Yeah, I, 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 can't, I, I never tried to watch it in the theater, but when I tried to watch it at home, I was like, nope, 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 nope. But I'm very prone to that, so I don't even go see 3D movies because they give me really bad headaches and sometimes make me a little bit nauseated. So um, I have a stigmatism, and I have a hard time with 3D movies now. I didn't used to, but I just can't watch them anymore. Um, the older I get, the more uh, I have a hard time 
actually seeing it visually. It's just, it's not clear the way it should be. And so I don't pay for those either anymore. There's just no point. Yeah. Especially since a lot of times your ear was a little bit more to see the 3D. So, but I actively, I just won't go. If friends go, do you want to go to this movie? We're going to go to the 3D show. I'm like, nope, nope. Because I'm not going to give myself a migraine to go to a movie. See a movie that I probably really didn't want to see anyway. Because if you wanted to see it, you already would have. (laughs) That's right. But, you know, I have to say, in terms of going back to the redemption arcs, when you ask the question, um, I'm glad we had this chat because we got when you, when you asked the question, I just thought about big redemption arcs. Like, how do I redeem somebody who has done really bad things? And I I hadn't really thought about like the mini redemption arcs. I mean, and certainly I've written them because I just hadn't thought about it. But it got me thinking about the idea of redemption arcs and the mechanics of it in a different way. Um, because there are little redemption arcs. Because sometimes to deal with characters who are only just a little bit of an asshole, you still kind of have to redeem them a little bit. Or even if they're a lot of an asshole, but they just haven't, they're just not a mass murderer. There's a really good fic in NCIS. Um, It's told in um, present tense, uh, which is not my jam. So when I tell you that it's really good, um, because I don't even hardly read present tense, um, and it's a a redemption arc for Tim McGee, um, where um, he doesn't let Ziva turn the radio off. And get away with it. And him and Tony end up leaving um, NCIS and going to the FBI. Because Gibbs takes Ziva's side. And Tim, is, you know, he redeems himself because he'd been really shitty. He'd been really shitty to, t- to Tony and Cannon up until that point and um, following Ziva's lead. And in that moment in the car, he made a different choice for himself in that fic. And um, he redeemed himself. And and he had Tony's back. And he continued to have Tony's back throughout the entire thing. And when Tony walked away, he did too. It's about loyalty. And it was really good. Um, It's it's in, um, it's called AO3. It's a dead air fic, obviously. Um... You know what I'm talking about. Called, yeah, it's called Being True. I just pasted the link in. Um, it's called Being True? Yeah, it's actually not in first person. I mean, not in present time. I'm just looking at it. Um, it's not in... Pre- oh. No, it's not in present time. You must be thinking about a different one that's in present time. Because it's not this story. I was like, okay, yeah, that's present time. like, no, it's not. No, mostly it's not in present time. Uh, but it is very good. It's a very good redemption arc um, because okay. But what's the one in the present tense? Because you know that one we had we, we had that it was really good, and it was also there, from I don't remember point of view. So I told you go read this. It's it's in, it's in present tense, but it's okay. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> be fine. and that's how it goes. And you and you came back and told me you you felt betrayed by yourself. <laughs> yeah, I don't remember. Um. But yeah, the one where Tim doesn't let Ziva turn off the radio. Uh, the redemption arc is, I think, about Tim's character up to that point, is the way I would perceive. This is my perception of it, right? It was, the author may not have been writing a redemption arc at, arc at all. But my perception of the redemption is, is that he had given in always um, to what other people had done, right? 
and he 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 there was a line in the sand that he wouldn't cross and i think that he re- to me redeemed himself as a character um as a person in that um and that once he he crossed that once he once he made that decision and he he stood up he wasn't willing to back down again and i thought it was just, it was really well done story was it that was in present tense I, was I found the part where you recommended it me. You recommended it to me, and I, um, I told you I said, "You hussy, this is in present tense." <laughs> and you told me you didn't even notice. So that isn't this story, though. It isn't. No, it's not. Um, I think that was the um one. I was that the one I mentioned on the podcast when where where Jarvis goes back in time and saves Tony. It says June 16. It might be. That, prob- that probably was that But one. there's no link. There's no link to it. So not the right That's because we talked about it on the podcast, and you had probably gotten the link from the podcast rather than in. Because I remember you wrote me right after that and said, this is in present tense. And I was like, um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I didn't even notice. I didn't notice. Because sometimes I don't notice. There's another story. Um. A, I, well, I want to say it's a BDSM story that was written in present tense. It's a series of this. Yeah, I think it's a series. Uh, oh, it's first person present tense, which is my kryptonite. And I still, I, I actually failed to notice either that it was in first person or in present tense. <laughs> Not conscious. I mean, yes, if I was thinking about it, I would have noticed. But I didn't – it just didn't sink in. Um, it was an author I was familiar with. And um, so I started reading their ne- the next story. The, I liked their work, and I was reading the next story in, in the list. And, and I'm probably – I was on the second story when I suddenly went, this is written in first-person present tense. What am I doing? I'm like, I don't give a fuck. I'm going to keep reading. <laughs> Sometimes the things you don't like don't matter. <laughs> she's still I'm sure she's still searching. It's for... called Silence Isn't Golden by by Uni Locular. I'm gonna paste the link. It's Silence Isn't Golden and it it's on AO three and it is the dead air tag. Um but it's told in present tense. And I, I, this is this is the one that I found, I think, and gave it to you, and you were like, "I'm not reading this. It's in present tense." I said, "Read it. <laughs> it's interesting." Oh, <laughs> that is it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like the author says it might be anti Ziva, but I've never been entirely sure what that meant. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so there's two. There's two Tim and McGee. Okay, so they're both Jen, so that's interesting. One's one's not in past tense, and one is. One's no, but in... Yeah, the, but the silence is, but the the silence isn't golden. Is the one that I remember. I remember it just being a really fulfilling, um, emotionally fulfilling thing for me to to read Tim. Um, just really 
going all in for Tony. Yeah. Having his back. And so um, it's the way his character should have been written. a good read even if you don't like him i think you should read it because um you don't like present tense trust me i know <laughs> i think present tense is a sin <laughs> but still read it because uh it's it's awesome i i really enjoyed it But I think sometimes personal redemption stories are um, more rewarding emotionally um, than societal redemption um, because I think ultimately when you look in the mirror, what you think of yourself and what you accept and don't accept about yourself um, is more important than what yeah. anybody else yeah. thinks of you. And so when you have a character who, who looks in the mirror and doesn't like what they see, but then does the work, walks the walk, to to really get there, it's it's very rewarding to read something like that. Yeah. And that's because, I mean, and also sometimes I think it's a redeeming a character for the audience, not for the character themselves. Because sometimes the character isn't, I mean, the character if, may not be aware, <laughs> um, since they're not aware that they're a character, they may not, especially if you're doing a canon divergence, the character may not be aware of the redemption. Um, but to give them kind of a moment, almost like creating a sliding doors for yourself, where they make a different choice it can be a redemption for the audience, which can be very satisfying. Which is kind of what, I mean, it's not a sliding doors in terms of there's, it's a sliding door on, when you, I guess when you do a canon divergence, you've got a sliding door on canon, um, where canon goes one path, and the character made a different choice and goes another path. Um, and to show that moment, I think, actually makes stories like that really powerful. Uh, to let the audience see exactly what it is that made them make a different choice, that makes them a better person in the end. So it's they're redeemed for the audience more so than like redeemed from an acting canon. But I don't know what a, what a redemption arc would look like. Um, what would it, we could actually talk about that briefly. What would a redemption arc look like for someone like Tim? Let's say Tony doesn't get hurt. Um, but they go through with the shutting off of the comms. What would a redemption arc look like? Would it be that he has some realization like that night that they fucked up and that it really shouldn't have happened and, and he goes and faces the consequences no matter what? That'd be interesting, actually, that Tim comes to work the next morning, writes a report, and hands it to Gibbs. And Gibbs doesn't know anything about it, and Tony's decided not to say anything about it. Knowing that he might get fired. Knowing that he should get fired. Should get fired. Yeah. Um, what if, I guess it's not about Tim, but about Loki and doing a canon divergence. What if when Loki is falling from the, bo the Bifrost and um, Thor and him both go over 
and Odin arrives in time to grab Thor. And they're trying to talk Loki into not letting go. What if Odin found the right words in that moment to keep Loki from letting go and he was able to pull both of his sons back onto the bridge? Yeah. Someone just made an interesting um, comment in the Facebook group. I won't use their name since I don't have their permission to do that, um, specifically about Loki. Um, part of, I'm going to kind of summarize, paraphrase part of it because I think I only uh, – we were talking about whether or not Loki's origins is a good device for a redemption arc. And she says um, – is if it's tied into his magic and or some concept along the foundation of his magic being the ability to know his own identity. And then the whole thing where he learns he's built the foundation of himself on a lie causes him to lose the balance of his magic and essentially creates a feedback loop that makes it a little bit crazy or possibly adding the power of the Odin force when Frigga dubbed him regent, took the cracked foundation and sense of self and caused it to shatter. Um, I thought it to be a really interesting way it to bring in. It is interesting. His magic from Frigga. But you're playing not from his. With... Yeah, but I mean, I think I think that that's that's something you could easily play with. Is what's the source of Loki's magic? Because that could be a lie as much as anything else was. Mm-hmm, true. So if if his magic is more intrinsic, um, and, well, it could even be like a corruption of his magic. If his magic is related to him being Jotun, and it has developed and grown based upon him with whatever spells make him look like an Asgardian, feel like an Asgardian, act like an Asgardian, because his, his body chemistry, it's not just a glamour, his body chemistry is different. He's not freezing things when he touches them. So if he's developed and grown with this, spell on him to keep him looking like what an, if they're and using like an his Asgardian. magic his natural magic to fuel that spell yeah and when, and then it breaks when it breaks um when he touches the casket of winters and what if that creates a mental instability Rebecca, what do you mean that loki could already shapeshift when odin found him I think she means in the in the comics. I don't remember in the movie. Loki, I mean, he picks Loki up, and I thought he used his own magic to make him look like an Asgardian before he ever took him from that temple. Yeah, to hide what he was. Yeah, because if Loki was creating that glamour himself, he would have known he was a Jotun all along. So I right. kind of have to separate when we talk about Loki, we're talking about MCU Loki. We're not talking about comic book Loki or Norse mythology Loki or um, so you, there's, there's three kind of three different universes. There's what, what mythology tells us about Loki, which makes him Odin's brother. So let's separate that out right away. Comic book Loki um, is probably more closely related to what's going on in the MCU, but we're talking specifically about what is in is, is what we see in MCU, and I never saw any evidence that Loki could shapeshift before he broke that glamour, whatever it was, that spell that made him look Asgardian. 
And if Loki could shapeshift before he was found, then he could have even as an infant presented himself in a fashion that would not have, that would have made sure that his father didn't abandon him in that temple. Because the reason that Loki was abandoned in that temple is because he was puny and small. Right. Which is why it's my opinion that he's not entirely, um, that he's got something going on besides his father's hair, um, heritage. Yeah. That he's half frost giant and half something else. The shape-shifting, I don't know how much shape-shifting there was in the actual shape-shifting. Not just glamours, but actual shape-shifting. I don't know how much there was in the comics, but that's basically um, Norse mythology that he could shape-shift. Which is how he wound up with a horse for a child and, you know. So all that's all Norse mythology, which fortunately Marvel has chosen, wisely chosen to disregard. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, movie Thor audiences are adopted. not quite ready Thor for that. Thor is not Frigga's child in the comics. I read that um, the other day. Um, and there, there's also another child um, in the comics. Um, of course, in Norse mythology, Hela is actually Loki's daughter. Right. So, um, well, I mean, yeah, it's convoluted. It is convoluted, but definitely the... Um, because we're dealing with Marvel's universe, the MCU is more closely related to the comics than it is related to Norse mythology, but they still break away from a lot of stuff that was presented in the comics. So um, when we talk about, I write in the MCU, I don't write in Marvel comics. Um, and so, I barely write in the MCU. I only have a couple of short stories. Um, but Thor wasn't Frigga's natural child in the comics, I don't think. And then there was Bal- Bal- Baldar? Baldur? B A L D R, who was her child. Um, but he's not been shown in the movies at all. Yeah, there's just the two, and neither Thor nor Loki in the MCU have any children. So, um, well, there's the three with Hela, but we didn't know about Hela until. Yeah. We would have had no reason to suppose. And two of Loki's children wind up becoming get serving different functions um, in the MCU so so yeah um, it's always a little, bit, a little bit of a disconnect with Marvel comic universe versus Marvel cinematic universe yeah because I don't think I, I could actually stomach Odin at all if they had given him his actions in Norse mythology in relation to Loki because that's that's nightmarish if they yes, kept that, and Loki being his adopted son, it, it's oh. Anyway, we're done at thirty-eight seconds. You guys have a um, great evening, and um, it's Thursday, right? So we'll see you tomorrow night. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll have a topic, or we'll be having a writers' table. Either way, catch you guys later. Something. Say good night. Something. Good night, everyone.